So I want to welcome everyone to the podcast. My name's Elijah, and our heart is to help Christians critically think. And I have Dr. Nijay Gupta on on the line with us, um, and he's the author of A Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies. And I read that book. I thought it was excellent. Um, as we learn about the Bible, as we learn about Scripture, we need to learn what the major issues are that are facing the church as they learn, you know, what is God's Word really saying? And there's different positions, and as you learn those, they give you a framework to go back to Scripture and go, what does it mean? And so what got you into New Testament studies in the first place? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, and um, yeah, excited to talk about uh, this book and how to resource better people who wanted to study the Bible. So, uh, I'd say what really got me into it was just a love for Scripture. Um, you know, I, I became a Christian in the, le- the later part of high school and um, just fell in love with the Bible. And I was able. I went to a secular uh, state school, and I was able to take a little bit of ancient Greek. Uh, just to kind of uh, learn a little bit more about the Bible. And, um, you know, I, I finished college and I just felt like um, I, I just really need to spend some time digging deeper into the Bible, learn Greek, learn Hebrew. And so I ended up going to seminary. And, you know, that passion has persisted. I want to be faithful to God. Um, I want to be able to hear God clearly. I want to share with others my passion. So it really, it really just comes out of my love for, for God's word. Uh, and, and, um, you know, as they say, I got bit by the bug of, of wanting to become an academic and teach so I can work with pastors, help better, uh, to resource and equip them. Could you give us a little bit of the background of what it means to talk about a historical Jesus and maybe some of the different positions and what led you to the position you currently take? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, so for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of, you know, when the church first started until um, kind of the Enlightenment, um, theologians, people that read the Bible were, that were Christian, took the Gospels at face value that th- this is telling us about who Jesus is. Um, you know, once we start to get into the age of uh enlightenment, this, you know, the secularization of the university, things like that, um, you know, all these questions begin to uh, be shared about whether the Gospels are actually presenting real history. We all know what it's like to read a biography or watch a movie and wonder, this really happened the way that they have portrayed? Is this really like what Nelson Mandela was like? Or is this really like um, how Facebook started, you know, we, we have all, you know, we naturally have those questions. And so we start to see that emerge, you know, in that, in that period, you know, the 18th century and, the, and the going into the 19th century. And so uh, you have, you know, the doubt, uh, this kind of emergence of the doubting of miracles, the doubting of the resurrection. And then what ends up happening then is the, the, the development of all these theories, right? Okay. Let's take for granted based on, you know, other, other resources we have that Jesus is a person in history, but let's say he didn't rise from the dead. Um, then who was he and what was he all about? You can also just look at the gospels and ask those questions too, because Jesus isn't going around all the time saying, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the second person. 
of the Trinity. Uh, I'm divine and I've come here to do miracles and to spread the gospel. Um, so this, there's kind of a, uh, a coming together of a variety of different historical factors, questions as people have read the gospels that have led to all these different theories. Some are, are very um, uh, subversive theories that try to disprove Christianity. Some are theories that just say, okay, let's take this, let's take the gospels as they're given to us. Still, how did Jesus think of himself? How much mm -hmm. did he know about his messianic identity? For example, some of the gospels refer to Jesus as a prophet. And yet we don't really talk about that much in the churches that I've been in where, you know, we talk about Jesus Messiah. We talk about Jesus as King Lord, but we don't really talk about him as Messiah. Some scholars say Jesus was uh, a wisdom teacher. You know, he was a rabbi um, and, and Jesus is called teacher. And how mm -hmm. much do we really emphasize that? So when we look at pieces of Jesus' identity, teacher, prophet, um, you know, the, himself, the word of God, uh, and then Messiah. And then how much do we read King into that? Um, how much do we look at Jesus really recognizing himself his own divinity so that's a long prelude to your question which mm -hmm. is kind of what are the key key theories and and where do i uh where do i fall um you know some of the dominant theories are jesus was primarily a prophet kind of like john the baptist um because he's preaching this uh message of what god's about to do right he's he has insight from god that's one of the dominant theories uh, one of the more popular ones today is Jesus was a, a revolutionary. He was a mm -hmm. zealot. He came to overthrow Rome. He came to question the imperial powers. And then he kind of sacrificed his life in the midst of that. You have people like Tom Wright who argue, uh, unsurprisingly, that G the dominant identity of Jesus is Messiah. Mm -hmm. And yet Messiah does come with some uh, some kind of royal dynamics of this is a king of the people questioning all the other kings of the world. Mm -hmm. um, where do I fall? I, you know, I, you've read my book and I've tried, I tried to hide <laughs> my own views uh, in the book, whether we're talking about Paul's theology or revelation. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reviews, uh, this is just kind of side commentary. One of the reviews pointed out how I'm neutral in all the chapters, except on revelation. I don't give much credence to the, to the rapture doctrine. So we could talk mm -hmm. about that later, but sure. I try to hide my views. But I, there's a reason behind that. I, um, I, I, I don't tend to follow just one line of thought really, mm -hmm. really, you know, uh, confidently. I like to see what's beneficial in different views. Sometimes that means I create a Frankenstein <laughs> view mm -hmm. of like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I often find like there's something good in some part of something good in what each of the views offers, mm -hmm. even if it's just their questions. Um, so I would say, you know, I agree with those scholars that, that do say Jesus is the Messiah that he doesn't necessarily say it all the time, but mm -hmm. some of the, the Royal imagery, some of the, the clues and hints in the gospels about, you know, the King of the Jews and things like that really clue us into that. Uh, some of the social background, historical background backdrop of that being a time period where people claiming to be the Messiah are popping up everywhere that leads me to that. At the same time, that doesn't discount the fact that he was mm -hmm. also a prophet and teacher. Sure. So I, my background is more apologetics. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we have students, they run into a Bart Ehrman or a John Dominic mm -hmm. Crossan, 
and they're hearing apocalyptic Jesus, and the Jesus you were taught in church is off, really off. Um, how do you help those people reorient themselves as they're going through this process of challenging their views, hearing new sides, um, and struggling with their faith? Yeah, that's good. That's a good question. And it's a great practical question. I mean, number one is, um, don't believe everything you read. Uh, just because a book is published or just because a book is by someone who teaches at an institution like university doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. And it doesn't even mean that other scholars agree with them. Now, Bart Ehrman's, you know, he's a recognized scholar. Sure. He He's very well known in the area of uh, reception of early Christian, you know, of, of the early Christian texts uh, and uh, the apostolic fathers. So there's, there's some areas that, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. Sure. Um, but that doesn't automatically make him right. And, and I say that because we read a New York Times bestseller book. And if I'm a young, you know, young in my faith Christian, I might think, oh, mm -hmm. okay, that means this book is right. Well, it just means the book is popular. And there's lots of things mm -hmm. that are popular that aren't right. Uh, what I would say is the first, the first question to ask, uh, in my opinion, is are the Gospels that we have in the Bible historically reliable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's questions about genre, what exactly are they trying to say? But I think it's helpful mm -hmm. from an apologetic standpoint to just ask the question, mm -hmm. you know, are, are these legitimate resources to use to help us understand the Jesus of history? And that helps a lot because a lot of the historical Jesus scholarship throws the gospels out. Mm -hmm. They say, Matthew's, you know, adds a bunch of stuff. Luke adds a bunch of stuff, and John's not even worth talking about. So if we can't even come to some agreement on what counts as the sources that we're talking about, that's going to make it impossible to have a conversation. So I would say, you know, let's sit down. Let's talk about what was Mark trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, did he have sources? Where those sources come from? You look look at Luke and Luke's emphasis on eyewitnesses. So. I, you know, I, I don't want to hand them a big book, but it, but I think of Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. A great book. Uh, which which really gets the absolute, mm -hmm. really gets to that question of, um, you know, can we take these documents seriously as resources for studying the person of Jesus? In terms of, you know, they're they're listening to all these, uh, you know, reading all these books. There are some books out there that help us map that conversation. So you've mentioned my book, but there's other ones as well. There's one by Mark Allen Powell called Jesus as a figure in history. There's one by Ben Witherington called Jesus Quest. Uh, Helen Bond has a little book, I think, called a Historical Jesus, A Guy for the Perplexed. I think reading those books help you step back and see what's going mm -hmm. on. So when I was young, you watch the news and you just think the news is true. Right. Right. Uh, you know, whatever channel, you know, if you're watching, you know, the explosion of, you know, this, the, the space shuttle challenger, you know, it doesn't matter what channel you watch. They're all telling you the news today. We realize news isn't just objective. Uh, this channel gives you this angle of the news and this channel gives you this angle and this channel gives you this angle. And I think reading some of those scene setting books, um, that, that give you kind of a lay of the line, like my book, but there are other ones that focus on historical Jesus for at length. I think they help you to see, to kind of lower that 
tension to say, there's a lot of views out there. Let's take a step mm -hmm. back and say, uh, where are these views coming from? What's motivating it? What are the sources? And um, many of the views actually are compatible with the Christian faith. Uh, some of them aren't. And it's worth learning about some of the tools that go into that. As a scholar, you're looking through the lens of like historical scholarship and using these different criterions to go, this is, you know, a true statement of Jesus or a historical fact. And as we work in apologetics, you run into, all right, it's pretty easy to work through the resurrection or the, the existence of a historical Jesus. Where it gets hard sometimes is the teachings of Jesus. And so how mm -hmm. do you, as a follower of Jesus, go, I, am I certain that my Messiah, my God, told me this? Um, do you ever run into that? Or does your view of Scripture um, just kind of put the pieces back together for you? How, how do you walk through that one? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, you know, th there's an old view of the Gospels, an older older view mm -hmm. that basically said, and I'm stealing this analogy from a scholar, but they basically said the Gospel writers are windows sure. to events that happen in history, like Jesus turning water into wine or Jesus being the multitudes or, you know, mm -hmm. um, to some degree that's true, right? Mm -hmm. Writers and historians are, uh, you know, the kind of gatekeepers to the past. But, you know, one scholar, he says it, it's less, it's not exactly that they're windows, but more that they're stained glass windows. Mm -hmm. What he meant by that is uh, we don't read through the window of the gospel writers. We read through their interpretation. Right. And that matters because, you know, we might say to ourselves, I mean, you may have heard this from people in the church or uh, some of your friends. I wish I could go back and be one of Jesus' disciples. Like, wouldn't it be sure. cool? And, and my, my response to that is, it's better to have the Gospels than to be there because we would have been as confused as the disciples were. Mm. So the disciples couldn't make heads or tails of Jesus, you know, strike the shepherds, sheep will scatter. Why are they scattering? They have no clue what's going on. They couldn't put the pieces together of, you know, it's like trying to put a puzzle together without knowing what the puzzle looks like. And so Jesus is handing them piece by piece by piece, and they just don't know how to put it all together. And only after the resurrection and after the giving of the Spirit are they able to put the to understand a picture and put the pieces together. So we don't just read about Jesus in the Gospels; we read through the evangelists. Now people might wonder, well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the Gospel of Judas? What about the Gospel of Peter? You have all this other stuff, and Christians believe that these Gospels. God has given us to give us a complete picture, a fourfold picture, a four-dimensional picture of who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. We might learn a little bit from, you know, Suetonius or Tacitus or, you know, Josephus or whatever, but this kind of rose, uh, this kind of stained glass window picture comes to us through the evangelists. Now, from a project standpoint, we can say they're reliable, they have sources, they have eyewitnesses, but from a Christian standpoint, we say these are inspired, and we trust these to convey Jesus to us. Mm -hmm. That's very different than going back in time and just watching him walk around. We're not going to be able to actually understand and interpret Jesus 
we need the appropriate translators to in order for that to make sense to us. And so when you're saying like, what about all these teachings and things like that? Um, you know, I can use tools as an academic to do some surgery on the text, but as a Christian, I receive what's given to us mm -hmm. uh, in the Gospels as as the voice of Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Um, a, another issue that comes up as you begin to look into New Testament studies is the relationship to uh, to Paul to Jesus. What did he know about Jesus? Um, there seems to be this point, um, Paul is killing Christians, and then he has a vision, some say, of the resurrected Jesus and his resurrected body. Others say a just like some type of euphoric moment. Um, how are we to think about that relationship and what Paul experienced? Yeah, you know, it's fascinating when you look at the Gospels and you look at the letters of Paul, um, there are a lot of differences. Jesus, or sorry, Paul doesn't talk about some of the things that you and I would talk about after reading the Gospels. We talk about the miracles of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? And Paul doesn't go explicitly into that. Jesus has lots of great teachings. For example, the Sermon on the Mount, Paul doesn't really... Uh, in any kind of explicit way, talk about those teachings, even though a couple of times he does seem to make reference to, for example, the Lord's Supper uh, or some smaller incidental teachings of Jesus. Um, so that makes you wonder uh, what Paul knew exactly. You know, according to Galatians, Paul spent time with Peter pretty much right away in his early Christian faith to learn from him about, presumably, about Jesus. Why that doesn't actually come up in Paul's letters is a bit of a mystery. Scholars will say, oh, well, he's already taught that when, when they were first converted. He already shared the gospel with them. He doesn't need to repeat that. But, you know, like any pastor, like any teacher, you're going to repeat things that are distinctive and important. And so some of that is a bit odd. I'll mention something. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but it's really interesting. In the gospels, the language of discipleship is all over the place. The Greek word is mathetes, the verb mathetuo. Everywhere it's it's in John, it's in all, it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's interesting in Paul's letters, we don't have a single occurrence of the term disciple, discipleship, mm -hmm. or discipling. It's almost like, and it's that's also true of Hebrews, First, Second Peter, letters of John, James, Revelation, mm -hmm. Jude. None of them. It's just in the Gospels and Acts, and so that makes you start to wonder what happened to this term, you know, to, to mm -hmm. this language. And I have all sorts of theories we can talk about later. But uh, what we do have to admit is there isn't this direct baton passing from Jesus to Paul. In our mind, we might think era of Jesus and then era of Paul, because he's such a prominent figure in the New Testament. But when we look at the actual language and terminology used, you know, there's kind of a famous statement, um, Jesus called for the kingdom, and then the church showed up instead, mm -hmm. uh, which means the Gospels, the first four and kind of acts in there. First four books of the New Testament emphasize the kingdom. And then Paul's letters barely a reference to the kingdom. And all of a sudden you have, you know, talking about the church all the time. Um, what most Christians don't recognize, though, is there is a gap between, you know, the end of the earthly life of Jesus and the beginning of Paul's writings, let's say First Thessalonians, that sometimes called the tunnel period. Mm -hmm. What this means is we don't know exactly 
what was being taught mm -hmm. in that tunnel period of about 33 uh, AD to about 50. Uh, okay. That's the most, presumably the most important time of the development of early Christianity, right? This is right mm -hmm. after Jesus raises from the dead, you know, and yet we don't have writings that were come exactly from that time. And so that must have been a period where there was some shifting of language and things like that. And so, you know, in my book, I talk about two views, one that sees Jesus and Paul as completely divergent. That's kind of a, a kind of anti-Christian view, uh, anti-canonical view. And then one that says, okay, they're not identical, but there does seem to be some continuity. Uh, and, uh, and, and, um, I'm, I take that position there. There is some continuity, even though we have to reckon with the fact that, you know, Paul's not talking about the kingdom of God all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Acts paints two gospel writers really close to Paul, Mark, mm -hmm. um, assumed, I mean, some people debate this, if it's the same Mark. We don't know. Uh, yeah, and, we don't know. And Luke. Um, do you think... Paul had access to Q or uh, any type of early gospel? Um, that is a great question. Uh, my guess is, and I'm just guessing, is probably no, mm -hmm. just because I think it would come out more in his letters. If, if mm -hmm. he had, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain or any of the major mm -hmm. sermons of Jesus. You know, I, I think it would just be natural for him to be using expressions just like we might. I had a chance about 10 years ago to listen to John Perkins. I don't know who John Perkins is, but he's a civil rights Christian leader. And he's elderly now. And I heard him preach in chapel at Seattle Pacific University where I used to work. And there was, you know, a couple hundred college students and then some mm -hmm. staff and, and faculty. And he, you know, he gave kind of a message and every like every sentence he said probably like half of the sentence was either a quotation or allusion from the bible okay and i don't think the students would have picked up on a lot of that because they don't have that you know biblical literacy and he's not saying quote 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 he, it's just coming out just because he reads the bible so much mm -hmm. and i think if paul had you know kind of like a a, a primitive form of mark uh, that he was constantly reading like at night, you know, or whatever in the morning for his morning devotions. I think that would make it a deeper mark impression, mm -hmm. leave a deeper impression on his letters. I think he had sayings. I think he knew core teachings. Um, you know, I think he had things, but I, I, I just don't, I'm just, I just can't be sure that he had anything like a full blown. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't really buy into the cue. Uh, okay. Document theory, but but I don't I don't think he had anything like a full gospel. I think he had lots of bits and pieces of things, and he mm -hmm. had the kind of stories that he's collecting from the apostles as he's interacting with them. Do you think he knew the teachings of Jesus well enough to live them and to transmit them to other churches? <sighs> you are asking some really hard questions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think so. I think he spent time. Uh, you know, what's interesting is the Gospel John tells us Jesus did even more than the things. Mm -hmm. So I think he had access to things that we don't know about. Sure. Uh, I think I think he had, you know, he knew stories about Jesus and and teachings that we don't have. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there are allusions to that in his letters. We have no idea. I, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, even even you know his use of the uh, the Lord's Supper tradition in First Corinthians bears witness to kind of this formality of some of the knowledge that he knows. Um, his confidence in his apostolic identity, Galatians chapter one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Second Corinthians. He never backs off and says, "Ah, you know, I don't, I don't know enough." I, I feel like he, he, at the same time, I mean, he's he's a charismatic figure, endowed with the spirit. He has visions of you know seventh heaven, tenth heaven, who knows what heaven he's been to. Um, so I think he has this kind of intimate union with Christ as well as mm-hmm. the living resurrected Lord. Um, we think of his knowledge of Jesus as a sometimes as a past thing, you know, knowing documents. Mm-hmm but it's also a living reality for him as well. Mm-hmm. That is a very interesting part of, I think, Christianity that you don't hear in the pulpit very much is the right. ongoing relationship of Paul to the resurrected Christ. And Can you maybe paint a picture of what the scriptures teach on that topic? Yeah, you know, for the book of Acts, uh, for example, um, you know, you have places, and I can't pull them off the top of my head, where he says, mm-hmm. you know, I was experiencing this, and the Lord stood by me. Right. Um, we don't know exactly what that looked like, but that sense of 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 presence, and you know, uh, he'll talk about the Spirit moving him from place to place. He has the famous vision of the man of Macedonia. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's not a vision of Jesus, but but obviously these are Spirit inspired, and and the mm-hmm. Lord does. Uh, do things like break him out of prison. You know, I mean, he's having very clear experience of the Lord. A, a good example from Galatians. I, I'm I'm uh, working on Galatians at the moment in my research. A, a good so, so it comes fresh to mind. But a good example from Galatians that says he he goes up to meet with Jerusalem leaders mm-hmm. because of a revelation. Mm-hmm. Now we don't know if Jesus appeared to him and said, "Hey, you need to go." Uh, take Titus with you and and go up to these leaders, or if someone else had a vision and told him, or if he just had some, uh, or maybe if they had a vision, we don't know. But but you know, is Jesus appearing to him at times, giving him instruction? Um, seems to be like those those kinds of things. He he talks about the word of the Lord uh, in First Thessalonians. Possible that that is something of that nature. We just don't know. Where is Paul getting his theology of the Christ from um, and Jesus being Christ? And um, yeah, he comes with a very robust understanding of this theological paradigm shift. He doesn't seem to have talked to Jesus in the present. Is this spiritual experiences? Is this reading the text and coming to conclusions? Yeah, you know, Acts paints vividly three times his conversion story where he meets Christ, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that heavenly vision of Christ. But in Paul's letters, he repeatedly points to Christian tradition, what has been passed mm-hmm. on to him. First Corinthians 15 being the most extensive and most explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, some people think that Paul's letters have traces of Christian tradition embedded in mm-hmm. things like the Philippian Christ hymn, the Colossian Christ hymn, chapter one, First uh, Timothy three. Uh, it's possible. I don't. You know, I, I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to kind of looking for kind of buried 
buried traditions. Right. The first Corinthians 15 gives us the best example where he says, you know, it's been passed on to me. I pass on to you. You know, this is what happened. He was buried. He rose. He met with these people. He appeared. Um, that tells us he has kind of a script mm-hmm. of tradition. And first, like at Thessalonians talks about hold fast to what we passed on to you, what we passed on to, what we passed mm-hmm. on to you. Repeatedly, he says, don't trust a letter from someone else. Don't mm-hmm. trust things as, you know, that come from, you know, spirits, you know, and things like that. Uh, don't trust rumors or hearsay, but go back to the deposit, the apostolic mm-hmm. deposit. So I do think there was some kind of creed or declaration that he received that gave mm-hmm. him kind of the tent poles that grounded his theology. Obviously, the very first experience was a Christophany, this bolt from the blue this vision but as he met with the apostles like cephas and james peter and james you know he's getting i think passed on kind of the the holy binder (laughs) of apostolic (laughs) teaching and and i think he sticks to that script pretty closely i think that's that's wise i mean you wonder you know how did christianity maintain Mm -hmm. uh a unity, a broad unity across so many cities, Ephesus, Philippi, Rome, Corinth, mm-hmm. you know, all these cities. Uh, how did it maintain that mm-hmm. for centuries, you know, and then, you know, continuing on. And part of that, I think, is sticking to the script. Right. It, it seems very interesting. We see a Paul and he's got these creeds and he's got him memorized and he's passing them on to churches. And then, like, where's the Sermon on the Mount? And maybe it just doesn't come up, uh, or maybe it, he didn't know. It. That's interesting questions. Um, so let's go on to Paul and the law. So mm-hmm. Paul starts wrestling with some issues with the law, and there's different viewpoints on that. Could you explain those viewpoints? Yeah. How many hours do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try want. to break it down. I'll try to break it down as simply as I can. I just I just gave a lecture yeah. on this, uh, like a two-hour lecture on this yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but um, so scholars, you know, trying to simplify the discussion, they talk about an old perspective on Paul and a new perspective on Paul. So let's just start with the old perspective. Mm-hmm. The old perspective, we can just identify with Martin Luther. So Martin Luther, mm-hmm. you know, that great figure of the Reformation, uh, he wrote a lot of stuff on Christian theology, but the but, but but one of the most important things he wrote was a commentary on Galatians. And in his commentary on Galatians, he makes clear how he interprets some of the language in Galatians. Let's look at a key text, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul's talking to Peter, and he says, You know that no person is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. I mean, that's kind of the classic... Uh, justification statement that Luther latched on to. So uh, we know that in Galatia, there were opponents, there were interlopers, there were enemies, agitators, whatever you call them, and they were opposing Paul. And Luther in his reading sees those opponents as teaching uh, uh, like works that merit justification. So you can be saved by your good deeds. You can be saved by your good works. Mm-hmm. And Luther interpreted Paul as opposing that. Mm-hmm. So you have the Galatians kind of watching this boxing match. Mm-hmm. And the boxing match is between these enemies who are preaching works and Paul who's preaching faith. Mm-hmm. Okay, And these enemies are clearly Jewish. 
they promote circumcision, they promote the Jewish traditions, things like that. So we might call that the old perspective associated with Luther because it emphasizes that the uh, this kind of Jewish uh, religion approach focuses on works and then the kind of Christian or Pauline emphasis on justification focuses on pure faith, just kind of giving it to Jesus and Jesus covers Jesus covers you, which which is that notion of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, this giving over of the status of righteous or innocent. That's the old view. What is the new perspective? Well, scholars after the Holocaust, you know, what they call post-war theology, they start to see how Christians over time have made Jews into the enemy. In fact, there's Christian scholarship uh, of the 20th century, early 20th century, that basically said Jesus gave up on being a Jew. He kind of looked at Judaism and he said, ah, to the heck with that, and started Christianity. Uh, and, and then that kind of spills over into the study of Paul as well, that Paul is kind of the enemy of Judaism. Even talking about Paul's conversion makes it seem like Paul converted away from Judaism and converted towards Christianity. And that doesn't seem to be the case. He worships the same God. He reveres the same scripture. He honors the same scripture. He, he treats the Old Testament with the utmost respect. Uh, I don't know what your experience is, but I don't hear a lot of sermons on the Old Testament. And when I do, often pastors are uncomfortable preaching the Old Testament because they feel like the Old Testament is just a bunch of laws that are outdated, irrelevant, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, but when we read Paul, he always talks about the Old Testament with respect. And in fact, some of his core messages come from the Old Testament. So his emphasis on faith, that comes from Abraham, right? The mm-hmm. man of faith, Abraham believed God as credit as righteousness, and Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous will mm-hmm. live by faith. So we think that, that you know, we see these false juxtapositions. We see Old Testament is about law. New Testament is about faith and grace. That's not true. Faith and grace were in the Old Testament, and to some degree, law is in the New Testament. Even Galatians talks about the law of Christ. Um, we'd, we think Old Testament is the bad news, right? Mm-hmm. Luther said the law... Uh, torments us and drives us to Christ. So it's almost like bad cop, good cop. The law is bad cop, according to Luther. And it makes you afraid and shows you how imperfect you are. And then in swoops Jesus to to say, no, I love you. I'm going to take care of you. But if you read the Old Testament, let's say the book of Exodus, how did Israel know God as compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving to to so many generations? So the new perspective comes along and says, when we read the Old Testament, when we look at Jesus and his commitments, when we look at the literature that was produced by uh, Jews around the time of Jesus and Paul, we don't get the impression it was a works-based religion. We get the impression that, that just like Deuteronomy says, God chose Israel out of his loving kindness, and Israel knew that. The New Perspectives argues when Paul's being critical of the law, he's not being critical of the law because... Uh, the boogeyman is works righteousness. He's being critical of the law because some Jews, Jewish Christians, were trying to pressure Gentile Galatians to take on the law so that they, those Gentiles can be considered Jewish. So that the Gentiles can be welcomed into the family of God that's historically associated with Israel. 
And Paul says, no, what happens with Jesus, what happens with the cross, what happens with the resurrection, what happens with the spirit opens up that family, grafts in these Gentiles to make it a bigger family. And you don't need to demonstrate Jewishness by obedience to the law in order to be fully welcome in this family. You just need to put on Christ to be baptized and to put on Christ. How do we know that's what's going on in Galatians? I'm one of these people who uh, who finds value in the new perspective, even though we can talk if you want about what I find valuable about the old perspective, which is still something I appreciate. Mm-hmm. So what I find valuable about the new perspective is it makes a lot of sense in Galatians because the core issue that leads to the letter is circumcision, mm-hmm. not good works. Mm-hmm. So if the letter was all about, hey, good works needs to be put in the... No, it's all about circumcision, which if you think about it, is something that you actually can't brag about because you don't do it to yourself. <laughs> right, right. And so, and so you can't really boast in good works mm-hmm. if, if it's about circumcision. Um, and so the very things that were kind of controversial issues at the time about what separate Jews from Gentiles, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath, are all things that are mentioned in Galatians. So... Um, some people today want to criticize new perspective saying, oh, it, it turns Paul into a sociologist. It turns Paul focusing on just the horizontal. That's not true. The new perspective isn't a dominant theology of all things in Paul. It really is about how we explain the background of texts like Galatians or Romans. Um, but scholars associated with a new perspective like Tom Wright, James Dunn, uh, they actually have a very robust vertical theology. They talk a lot about uh, salvation in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. um, the importance of personal faith, all of that. So so sometimes this discussion gets reduced to old perspective focuses on vertical, new perspective focuses on horizontal. I think that's a false dichotomy. And I think you can retain some really important aspects of the old perspective, like complete reliance on Christ. Uh, without losing some of the sociological aspects of the new perspective. So this is kind of the, I guess, thoughts in the back of a lot of old perspective people's minds is, what's the gospel now? Because they're used to law gospel. Um, what is? Tell me how to get saved. Like, yeah, tell, tell yeah. me what it means to follow Christ. Right. Well, you know... The, the beauty, I think, of a really good, robust theology, I think I think both Jimmy mm-hmm. Gunn and Tom Wright do a good job of this, is mm-hmm. uh, it's not just focused on the individual, even though the individual is important. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I love soccer. That's, my, uh, that's sure. my heart language in terms of sports. And so you think about an individual player, right? Mm-hmm. And the individual is important, right? You can't win mm-hmm. games without goal scorers. Well, you probably could, but <laughs> yeah. in general, you can't win games without goal scorers, right? So each player needs to be healthy. Each player is important, but the, so is the whole team, Sure. right? You know, people will say players don't win games, team win ga- teams win games, or coaches sure. win games, or organizations win games, right? And so when we talk about what is the gospel, you know, someone like Tom Wright's going to say, the gospel, Elijah, isn't about your individual salvation um even though that's important Mm -hmm. the gospel really is about what god has done in jesus christ sure and what you receive from that is a beautiful benefit of the gospel so what tom wright does uh, i think wisely when he's explaining the gospel is he goes back to isaiah especially to isaiah 
uh, 40 through 66, where the verb mm-hmm. gospel is used a few times. And Israel is in, you know, kind of a hard place. They're dealing with issues of losing their land, losing kind of the trajectory of settling into the promised land. And they're wondering, what's God doing? And there's mm-hmm. a variety of problems. They're dealing with sin issues. They're dealing with uh, persecutors. They're dealing with exile. They're dealing with um, disappointment. So the gospel, a couple times, it says, you know, get you, get up on a high hill, O herald of Zion, proclaiming the good news. Uh, here comes your God. Mm-hmm. So the gospel is God showing up to rescue His people. God showing mm-hmm. up to change the world. Now that happens to us experientially on an individual level. The gospel itself is God showing up to make right what went wrong, right? As Tom Wright says, to bring the world to rights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and so that's to me that's that's the beauty of the gospel. It's this message that God's going to change all things. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we're looking around the world and we're saying things are looking pretty bleak, right? We have widespread disease we have environmental issues we have economic issues and the gospel isn't just hey i have this nice ticket in my pocket that when i die i go to heaven Mm -hmm. um that is nice it's a nice thought um but that's a pretty small way of looking at the good news Mm -hmm. Uh, is it true that when i depart i'll be with the lord yes paul says that philippians is true but the gospel Mm-hmm. is this idea that the Lord, the one Lord of all, has this big, beautiful plan that he's already unraveling now to transform all things. And that's what motivates, we just had Martin Luther King Jr. Day, that's what motivated King, sure, right? To a, to a small degree, that's motivated Mar- uh, Mahatma, uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, right? Uh, Mahatma Gandhi was a fan of the, of the Bible, um, and and found great inspiration in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, um, that inspired um, many of our uh, great Christian leaders uh, of, of the past and present. Is this grandiose, glorious, beautiful vision of the gospel? So, you know, what is the gospel? You're asking. The gospel is the undoing of sin's devastating effects on God's mm-hmm. good world, and the good news. Part of the good news is we get to be a part of that. God changes mm-hmm. our heart, our lives, but then he also uh, uh, invites us and calls us into being a part of change making in the world around us. So as a Christian, is there a different lifestyle that comes out of the new perspective or you know, do the, the old perspective and new essentially live the same way and they just go, there's just a different starting point of understanding this. That's a really good question. I think you'll get different answers from different scholars. So you're asking me, so I'll give you my answer. So let's take uh, one of my friends, Douglas Moo, who's a proponent of the old perspective. Mm-hmm. If Doug and I were to sit down mm-hmm. in a room together and talk about you know, the Christian lifestyle, I think it would sound very similar. Mm-hmm. I think what we would say would sound very similar. Um, so I, d- I don't think there would be drastic differences. I think what the new perspective does is it helps us capture a more realistic vision mm-hmm. of what was going on actually on the ground in Galatia, mm-hmm. on the ground in Rome. Um, so James Dunn, Jimmy Dunn, he wrote this massive, like 800-page Pauline theology, which I don't have in front of me right now. But if you read that, I mean, he says, 
talks about the importance of individual salvation. He talks about the importance mm-hmm. of confessing our sins and, you know, all of those mm-hmm. things. So it's, it's not that that's going to be absent uh, mm-hmm. from a new perspective perspective. Um, I think what Doug brings to the table, which I wouldn't, is Doug is convinced, um, and he recently wrote a big book on this called The Theology of Paul and his letters, I think. Mm-hmm. But what Doug argues is Paul had a big uh, concern for teaching uh, that that Christian faith should be focused on believing and not doing. And okay. he sees that in Galatians. He sees that in Romans. I think that's true. I just don't think that the text that Doug thinks is talking about it is talking about that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's there in Ephesians chapter 2, right? By grace mm-hmm. you've been saved through faith. Not, you know, not of yourselves, a gift of God, not by works, and no one should boast. It's there. It's Paul obviously recognizes that. But is it there in Galatians 2? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's more a matter of emphasis. And I think Moo's approach can inadvertently lead to a more passive faith. I think that mm-hmm. you would disagree with me, but I think his approach places the emphasis on belief at the expense of the outworking of faith in our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Now, Moo's book has a big section on lifestyle, mm-hmm. but I would make that more central rather than, mm-hmm. you know, this should be what happens as a result. I would say that should just be what happens. So let me put it this way. One of the big issues I was, I was reading and reviewing uh, Moo's book uh, for a book review, and I was really curious what he says about final judgment. So this mm-hmm. is an area where old perspective and new perspective have some serious disagreement. Mm-hmm. So old perspective want to say final judgment is focused on uh, final judgment will be determined by the work of Christ, mm-hmm. not the work of man mm-hmm. for Christians. Right. And, uh, and, and therefore we may receive rewards or we may get a stern talking to or whatever, but the decision of final judgment we should go into final judgment with full full hope and assurance in mm-hmm. the final work of Jesus. That's it. That's it. Justification. Uh, Tom Wright got into hot water by saying uh, we will be judged on the basis of a life lived, mm-hmm. which reflects Paul's language of judgment according to works. Mm-hmm. And uh, that makes it seem like your lifestyle actually has a bearing on your salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, both of those views have their problems. If mm-hmm. if I were to talk to Doug Moo and say, but Paul never talks about judgment judgment by faith. He only talks about judgment by works. Mm-hmm. And then what Moo kind of just shrugs and says, I'm not, I don't know what to do with that, but the theological emphasis in his letters are on justification by faith. I would say, I don't, you're kind of letting yourself off the hook there. Mm-hmm. For right... Uh, right isn't able to fully coordinate how justification and judgment work. Is mm-hmm. it a balance? Is it like what? It, what? It, how exactly does it work? That's kind of a mystery. We don't. We don't really know mm-hmm. why Paul, on the one hand, talks about the assurance of justification by faith, and on the other hand, Romans two, First Corinthians five, Second Corinthians five, mm-hmm. he talks about judgment. First Corinthians three talks about judgment. Kata. Uh, uh, kata according to erga works. Mm-hmm. Uh, why does he talk about according to works unless it's a real, it's real serious business? 
What makes New Perspective different than Rome? Like a, New a Perspective different than Rome? Rome? Catholic, a Catholic perspective. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. What makes it different? What makes it different? I mean, everything. So you're you're talking about something specifically. Um, I mean, uh, uh, salvation by works in a Roman Catholic view versus yeah, a new yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you, t I mean, Tom writes Anglican, right? So he's Protestant. Sure. So right, right, right. So he's he's firmly believes in justification by faith. Jimmy Dunn said this as well. Mm -hmm. um so it has nothing to okay so i guess i'm struggling with this because the, the roman catholics i know would probably say your question is immediately misunderstanding roman catholicism i could <laughs> but, be um, if you want to explain it better yeah. I'm, I'm all ears well okay so i have a couple of good friends that are roman catholic and they would say mm -hmm. uh judgment does look at works mm -hmm. but it really looks at works because a true Christian, a Catholic, a true Christian will have Christ working in them, mm -hmm. and and the works then demonstrate that uh, you know that 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 work of God in their life. Mm -hmm. And so, without that, how can you really how can you really show that Christ has actually changed your life, that you've participated fully, uh, that Christ has participated fully in you and you and Him? So they would say. It's not Pelagianism. It's not, you know, hey, let's count up your works one at a time and get to like 200 or whatever. They would say the works are actually are actually a reflection of the difference Christ has made in your life. Mm -hmm. And it's either there or it's not. Uh, I would say I would say I would say right has some similarities of that. Mm -hmm. So I would say right, right and done are actually would be in agreement. I don't know. I would say right would be in agreement with the Catholics on some of those principles, mm -hmm. but you're asking, what's the difference? There's all sorts of difference on the Pope and, uh, sure, I mean, sure, sure. in terms I'm of judgment, focused. there's some similarities. There's different. Okay. Right. Yeah. I was, I was confused. Yeah. No, I would say on judgment. That's a good question. If you sat the Pope down, let's see if we can get this done. Let's see if we sat the Pope down yeah. with Tom, Wright. What would they disagree on? Well, they would disagree on purgatory. I said, sure. what would they disagree on in terms of, of the purposes of judgment? I think, especially given the Pope we have now, uh, mm -hmm. I think there would be a lot of agreement between them. Mm. I would think, okay, let me let me put it this way. This is fun. Let me put it this way. Tom Wright would agree more with the Pope than with Doug Boo. How about that? Okay. Okay. All right. Um, How about that? So, yeah. Uh, uh, so let's talk about Paul's letters. Um, there's some question, you know, did Paul and Peter write all the letters that are ascribed to them? Um, can you yes. talk about that topic right. for a moment? Yeah, man, this is like a, a short seminary education. It <laughs> is. It is. This is like all the stuff I'm covering in my in my summary class this quarter. So, um, so when we read the New Testament, you open up the New Testament and you get to the letters. It'll say Paul writing to Romans or Philippians, or whatever. Same thing mm -hmm. with Peter, James. You know, it'll mm -hmm. it'll mention the author, and it'll mention uh, who they're writing to. And so when we read the Bible, we kind of take for granted Paul was writing to Timothy, Paul was writing Philemon. Scholarship, especially of the last two hundred years, have questioned whether some of the letters in the New Testament were actually written by the people 
whose names appear. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, let me give an example. One of my colleagues and good friends is Scott McKnight, uh, who teaches New Testament, me at Northern Seminary. And uh, we Facebook message back and forth. We text back and forth. So one day I get a Facebook message that says from Scott, his account. And it says, uh, hi, Nijay, how are you? Mm-hmm. I immediately knew that his account had been hacked or this was like a cloned profile account. Why? He never says that. Mm-hmm. He just gets right to the point. He'll just say like, and what book is this, you know, yeah. remind yeah. me what book this is written in. Like he doesn't, he doesn't use, you know, kind of, you know, polite convention just because he just is a busy person and he just gets right to the point. So even though the profile is his and I would expect that to be Scott, something in the communication made me feel like that wasn't him. Mm-hmm. This might happen from an email address you get where it's, you know, let's say you're getting email from mm-hmm. a dean, but it's actually their administrative assistant that sends the emails, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're getting, you know, you're getting it from their official address, but the tone of the email is different than what you might experience in person. For some of those same reasons, scholars have said, let's look at texts like First Peter. And when we, when we think about the person of Peter, fishermen, right, probably little to no education. And yet Mm -hmm. the text of first Peter's very sophisticated, the Greek text uses more sophisticated vocabulary, literary form Mm -hmm. has a little bit more of a educated vibe to it. For, For that reason, scholars have said that and other reasons, maybe Peter didn't write this. Maybe it was somebody else. Um, you take Paul's letters where, um, for example, Second Thessalonians, he says at the end, now I'm going to sign this with my own autograph, just so you know this is me. Um, scholars have said that that seems like a clue that somebody else is pretending to be Paul. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's, it's like, um, it's kind of overdoing it. Uh, I call these pseudonymous tells. I actually think Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, but I call these pseudonymous tells. Mm-hmm. So there's like, just like in poker, you know, there's a tell that they're lying. So mm-hmm. people think that this kind of thing is a pseudonymous tell. Pseudonymous meaning written in someone else's uh, name. Now, that seems really bad, right? If, you, if you're hearing for this for the first time, you might be like falling over in your chair, like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that's really horrible. Why would someone do that? Well, actually, in that time period, there was a literary convention where someone would write in another person's name as a way of honoring them, mm-hmm. as a way of passing on their legacy. So, for example, there was a commentary on Gospel of John written by a, a, a prominent scholar, but he died before completing the manuscript. So the editor got a hold of his laptop posthumously, found the files, right? Put it together, maybe put some orienting sentences, and then they published that as a book. So who's the author of that book? Well, in some ways, it's that author that died, but in other ways, it's also the editor who may have added some nuances there. Or take, for example, the convention of ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. 
right? Today, the president, we might hear a speech by a president and say, oh man, that was a great speech, president. The president didn't write that speech, mm-hmm. right? Somebody else wrote that speech who will, most of us will never know. And so they had similar kinds of conventions in the ancient world mm-hmm. where people would uh, write uh, uh, in the name of somebody else. And so scholars have mm-hmm. debated and discussed some of the legitimacy of this, mm-hmm. whether it fits the time period, whether it fits the genre of a letter. Um, so scholars have come up with three categories. One category is authentic, meaning scholars really across the board agree that, for mm-hmm. example, Paul wrote Galatians. Mm-hmm. Almost nobody doubts that. If there's any text mm-hmm. that seems like it's Paul wrote it, it's Galatians. Then there are texts that are called disputed. And so these are this is where there's kind of a lack of assurance or clarity whether or not that text is actually written by paul for example colossians there's kind of a, a ambivalence in scholarship about that so maybe maybe not one of my professors john barclay used to say on monday wednesday and friday i think paul wrote colossians on tuesday thursday and saturday i think he didn't and i take sunday off <laughs> uh and I, th- that reflects well that kind of ambivalence and then there's another category called uh um Deuteropauline or pseudonymous, whatever you call it, where they think that Paul didn't write it. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the pastoral epistles, first, like Timothy and Titus, many, many scholars, when I go to academic conferences, they won't even take those letters into consideration when they're talking about the historical Paul. They just completely dismiss it because they think someone else wrote these letters. For some of the reasons I mentioned, mm-hmm. the style of writing doesn't seem like Paul at times. Um, there are things called that we call anachronisms, things that mm-hmm. uh, terminology and things that may seem to have come from a later time mm-hmm. that appear in those letters. For example, Paul talks about faith as if it's like doctrine in a way that he does it in some of his other letters, which leads some people to believe, oh, this must have been written in the second century mm-hmm. after Paul's death, because he uses faith in a way that makes it seem like there has come mm-hmm. to be this uh, really uh, uh, determined, uh, determinable thing called doctrine. So for some of those reasons, scholars dispute uh, the pastoral epistles as written. Uh, I would even say reject, you know, many re- scholars mm-hmm. in the academy reject Pauline authorship of that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any reason, well, <clears throat> how do you tell if a disciple of Paul's wrote something versus Paul used a scribe? How, how do they work through That's that? A, that yeah, that's a great question. I didn't I didn't mention that. So, um, many people in the ancient world were illiterate, <laughs> but when we talk about literacy, we have to think about it in uh, across a spectrum. You have like pure illiteracy, which means you can't read anything, <laughs> and then you have um, kind of like uh, practical literacy where you can read street science right right so like i took latin in high school and uh, a little bit in college i can't read spanish but thanks to latin i can kind of get by reading street science right Mm -hmm. but i can't but if someone starts conversing with me i would have no idea so that's and then you have another level of literacy which would be kind of basic conversational literacy but you can't read you know voltaire you can't you can't read more academic stuff uh, more kind of sophisticated, and then the the higher literacy would be more sophisticated. So you know, when we look at someone like Paul, 
he had to be literate to do a lot of the things that he did, um, to be reading things and to be interacting with things. But in the ancient world, writing a letter was seen as a professional activity. And uh, you would want to use a scribe for anything that was going to be kind of professional or public. And a, uh, a, a, they called him amanuensis. And amanuensis is a letter secretary. And so they weren't just like a secretary taking notes or dictation. Mm-hmm. Uh, often these letter secretary they could, but often they were helping you to professionalize mm-hmm. the document. So sometimes like I'll be writing something and I will, I'll use a thesaurus to find, a, you know, maybe a little bit less common word or the right word. So mm-hmm. they might use a letter secretary for that. Or a letter secretary may be used to make sure there's kind of nice turns of phrases, things like that. So you kind of alluded to this. Paul, we know, does use letter secretaries. We don't know all the time, but we know in Romans he mentions Tertius. Mm-hmm. Because Tertius is a Christian and a letter secretary. And he says, hey, Tertius, make sure to introduce yourself in the letter. And he does. So we know he does. Sometimes maybe he doesn't use a letter secretary. We're not sure. And sometimes, obviously, he does. Now, you're asking, when would we know mm-hmm. when a letter secretary is giving input and maybe doing some writing? And then when is it um, someone after Paul's time? In terms of writing style, there's really no way to know mm-hmm. at all. The more, the bigger clue would be if we found anachronisms, if we found mm-hmm. things in Paul's letters that couldn't possibly come from the first century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a clue that this happened mm-hmm. uh, at a later time. I don't think we have those things, even mm-hmm. though... I admit that the vocabulary and style mm-hmm. of some of the letters in the New Testament don't match some of the other letters. There's a scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson. He wrote a really helpful book called Constructing Paul, where he's talking about how scholars approach Paul. And he says, instead of thinking in terms of um, the authentic Paul writing style and the, you know, pseudonymous or, or, or forgery writing style, we should be thinking in terms of writing teams. Sometimes Paul is using X writing team like he does in first, second Corinthians. Sometimes he's using Y writing team, which he does with Romans and Galatians. Sometimes he's using Z writing team, which he uses with Ephesians and Colossians. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard that theory before until I read that book, but it makes a lot of sense that instead of saying, this is the pure, authentic, pristine Paul of like, you know, talking into his voice, you know, tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And then this is the kind of filtered Paul through, um, you know, a, a later disciple. It's helpful to say maybe, maybe, so Scott McKnight does this too. He says, maybe none of the people, not maybe we don't hear Paul in any of his letters mm-hmm. because he's always using help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's um, and so, so, so when you, for example, have we ever heard a speech by a president? Have we ever heard the authentic voice of the president, mm-hmm. right? Well, or or is everything Trump. the president says? <laughs> <laughs> or, or? I don't think that man stuck the script very much. Yeah, that, okay. That's fair. That's fair. But, but you, know, um, you know, maybe when they're talking, <clears throat> when they're doing chopper talk, maybe they are mm-hmm. using points from their sure. press team. 
you know, we don't know. So, so that's one way to say, you know, we don't have Paul's diary to, mm-hmm. to use as a control to compare mm-hmm. his letters. So, so McKnight and Johnson say, we tend to use Galatians mm-hmm. as the kind of pure type. And, mm-hmm. and Johnson says, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe that's also one of the writing mm-hmm. team voices. I think as I find at a pastoral level, you know, you want people to have a good understanding of the complex issues facing the New Testament. But as you teach this, you find people just get exhausted. There's so much to read. There's so much to so much. wrestle through. You're right. And yeah. People just go, I can't know anything, or they stop devoting themselves to Christianity. And so how do you navigate, hey, there's a lot of questions about the New Testament that are hard to answer at a congregational level. Yeah, that's a great question. That's stuff that, you know, uh, I I encounter a lot with seminary students. You know, I teach seminary students, Mm -hmm. and often they do feel overwhelmed Mm-hmm. I mean, their first instinct is to feel excited about being informed. The worst is to just mm-hmm. not feel informed. And it's it's also bad when people bury their head in the sand and say, oh, I just want mm-hmm. a simple relationship with Jesus without all this knowledge. Well, even Paul seems to have been a man of the world enough to know what was out there in other philosophies mm-hmm. and religions and being conversant. But what would I say? So I often share this. It's not... Uh, a profound insight, but it might be helpful for some people. So there is a Christian philosopher named Paul Ricoeur, and he talks about something called the second naivete. Mm -hmm. So the first naivete is you're just ignorant. You don't know things, Mm -hmm. right? You've never heard of the historical Jesus and you have just a simple uh, faith. And then you listen to a lecture, a podcast, you study, you read books, and then you're overwhelmed and you have all these different theories floating around your head. And some people kind of exit, like you said, and just check out. But Ricoeur says we need to push through to a second naivete, which means we take everything we've learned, but we have to we have to decide how to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. And there's mm-hmm. a famous line in there, get busy living or get busy dying. Mm-hmm. And so part of that second naivete is saying, okay, as a human, as a leader, as a pastor, as a leader of my family, I have to move forward somehow mm-hmm. in faith. There's really no standing still. If you're not moving forward, you're, you know, you're moving backwards. If you're not living, you're dying. And so second I have a taste says, I'm going to collect the information and, and by faith and by reason, I'm going to move forward. I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to construct my own take, hopefully an intelligent one. I'm going to move forward with the understanding that I may confront new knowledge and have to kind of nuance and change. So for example, you know, we don't have to get into this, but all the stuff about creation and evolution. Now, I used sure. to have a really simplistic faith of, you know, six day young earth, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I'm studying science and I'm talking to philosophers. I'm talking to theologians. I'm reading scripture, you know, I'm reading biblical studies and I come to realize mm-hmm. it's not that simple. And so mm-hmm. I have my own, uh, thoughts on that and I move forward, but I'm always open to learning new things. So I encourage people um, don't get stuck in the quicksand mm-hmm. of having all this stuff just jamming your head. Uh, hold it lightly knowing that uh, 
the goal is to grow in our faith. The goal is to trust Jesus more. I will mention this little bit of self-advertising, but I think it'll help. Uh, one of my friends, AJ Swoboda, he and I have a podcast called In Faith and Doubt. And mm-hmm. we actually created that podcast to help people who are wrestling with, hey, I read a Bart Ehrman book, or hey, mm-hmm. why are Christians so weird? Or hey, mm-hmm. why does why does the church do horrible things? And we basically talk through how AJ and I also struggle with mm-hmm. what we call ugly Christianity, you know, the scandals. We struggle mm-hmm. with things about the Bible we can't explain. At the same time, that's a part of faith. Part of faith is being uncomfortable with things and still saying, like, this is my person. This is my God. My wife and I were married. We've been married for a while now. We don't love everything about each other. (laughs) There are some things we don't understand about each other. We have different personalities. But we say, you know, being together is a gift. Mm -hmm. And, And this relationship is a gift. One thing, and I don't know if this is always satisfying to people from a project standpoint, but when people want to exit the faith and they say, I'm done with the church, I'm done with the Bible, this is a bunch of crap. Um, one of the things I would want to say to them if I could sit down is, are you going to find something else out mm-hmm. there that's better? <laughs> because my sense is uh, very few people leave Christianity and then find a perfect philosophy, a perfect religion, a perfect Uh, way of life. You know, in fact, I talk to people five, 10 years later that say, I miss going to church. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have been listening to Mars Hill podcast and it's Mm -hmm. definitely, definitely a, you know, a sobering experience, but it's interesting to listen to people that left Mars Hill long gone, long done. And they look back and they say, there was still something. I, I still remember sensing the presence of God there. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything about good or negative about Marcel, but this idea of looking mm-hmm. back and saying, did I replace it with something better? Mm-hmm. When people say to heck with Christianity, I'm out of here. This is awful. Um, I want to know, did you find something easy mm-hmm. <laughs> out there that's better? Um, my sense is they don't. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I say that having grown up as a Hindu and I'm not saying that Hinduism is horrible, but I'm saying um, I don't, I, I didn't grow up with Christianity. So I do, I do know something different. Mm-hmm. And I know the joy of what Christianity offers me and that and that peace and joy in knowing Jesus is far greater than the mess of the package of Christianity that you accept. Uh, I want to pause you family. on that and go, that's a vacuous phrase. We all the time say, I get peace, I get joy. What do you mean about yeah. that phenomenologically? Like what what really changed? Because Christians yeah. get depression. You know, yeah, sure. You know, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you do Enneagram at all, but sure. uh, Enneagram is kind of a personality thing, but I'm an Enneagram 3. My son's an Enneagram 3 as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we we can get really bombarded. It, it affects us when things aren't going well in the world or when sure. things aren't going well uh, in, you know, some people can tune that out, but we can't. Mm-hmm. Like we get really highly affected by whether kind of we're winning, you know, in the Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, game of life. And I remember just as a young person, really wrestling with depression, really wrestling with not being accepted by the people around me, you know, being an Indian in a a majority white culture that I was in, uh, you know, being not a high achiever when it comes to math and science, which was an expectation Mm -hmm. in my family, all kinds of stuff. 
And as I'm ministering to my son, thinking about him, I think just the rich resource of being accepted and known by God in an unconditional way um, and, and being a child of God and, and knowing God's good future, I constantly have to remind myself of that. I constantly have to like spiritually pull that piece of paper out of my wallet just to, to remind myself like he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And when we're with God, uh, we're on we're on the side of light and victory, not in a triumphalistic way, but in a way that says um, it's always the right thing to listen to obey God, because mm -hmm. uh, in the end, what's right will come to light. Uh, so the Christ hymn, you know, Christ humbled himself and died and God super exalted him. I mean having that resource at our disposal to say, I can go through anything, the darkness, the difficulties, it's not fun. It's not easy. I have health problems. My, my daughter had health problems when she was young. So we, we, we don't have an easy life, but to know that I have this anchor, you know, this, this found, this grounding, this concrete grounding, that's super strong. Um, uh, I think it's a resource that I just can't imagine other people not having. Hmm. Uh, it's 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 a really really beautiful thing. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. And guys, be sure to check out this book. It's a great place to start: a beginner's guide to New Testament studies.